Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 88 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? I'm John Lodge of the Moody Blues. I play bass, I sing, and I write songs. So I hear that you're an up-and-coming artist. You're just trying to make a name in the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 50-odd years ago, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) It's unbelievable to think about five decades, 70-plus million albums. How do you see yourself as a musician in in this day and age and how do you reflect back on just a, a band that is I, I not just iconic but known in, in, in the general zeitgeist of the world i don't know i just got to play my bass and uh, i love bass playing and uh, one of the things we were doing originally of course uh, was to copy american songs And when we started to think, we can't do that forever. We've got to write our own material. And you start writing songs and you think, well, who's going to sing them? And you realize it's going to be yourself. You have to teach yourself to sing as well. It all goes together, really. I remember when I was 16, a friend of mine says, I know what you want to do. You want to be a musician, play bass what you're going to do when you're 21. <laughs> so that summed it up for me, really. That's a couple of years in relation to where you're at right now in life, isn't it, John? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's an incredible journey. And my bass playing, my music, uh, moody blues music, and all the music I've listened to has become the soundtrack of my life. It's an incredible thing. I mean, I want to talk about the present, but... Let's go back a little bit in time, because when we think about the name John Lodge, when we think about the band Moody Blues, there are certain songs that are definitely triggered depending on how old you are and where you live. But again, we're doing this podcast to talk about bass playing, and you've already mentioned it enough to get me super excited. Take me back in time to when you were first exposed to the instrument, and then how did you know that was going to be your instrument? Well, it it came about uh, a different way altogether that people come to playing an instrument. When I was 13, 14, I got my first still strong acoustic guitar. And I was learning to play chords on the guitar, finding out how the guitar worked. The, The school I went to, there's a cafe near there. And every lunchtime, I used to go there and play the latest rock and roll record on the Rockola jukebox he had. Every lunchtime, I'd go drop the coin in the slot and listen to uh, artists, iconic artists from America, like Gene Vincent, Elvis Presley. But the ones who got me were people like Fats Domino and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. And I realized what it was. It was left-hand side of the piano, the boogie p- piano coming out of a 12-inch rock and roll speaker. And that really got me really excited. And so on my acoustic guitar, I used to learn 
all the bottom end of the boogie riffs, guitar boogie on whatever Fats Domino recorded, Little Richard, I used to learn the, the basic riffs of the songs. And I realized that's what really endeared me to rock and roll. He wasn't the guitar or not even the vocalist, really. It was what was driving the music. I didn't really know what he was. I knew it was a piano, uh, and, but I knew there was something else. And there's this film called The Girl Can't Help It. In the movie, there was a band called The Tredius, and they came on a tour of England, and I went to see him. And in the back, there was a guy playing what I thought of was, at first, a Fender Stratocaster guitar. And I realized it only had four strings. <laughs> and I realized it was a bass. And I thought, that's it. That's what I want. I really want to play that instrument. There was no bass guitars really in England at all at the time. And I went in search and I found a solid bass called a tuxedo. I've looked on the, um, the internet to try and find what it looked really looked like because I don't have a picture, uh, and I can't find that. It's a tuxedo solid bass. And then I, of Hofner, were a big guitar company in the UK, I think it was the German, and they introduced a, a bass looking like a Hofner guitar, but it's called the President Bass. And I bought that, and it wasn't really what I wanted, but it played the bass parts. What I really wanted was a, what I saw in the Trenniers. And then one day I was in my, like all budding musicians do, I was at my favorite musical instrument store in Birmingham one Saturday morning, playing all my latest chords, like it, we all did it in those days at the music store. And as I got to this store window, there's a big poster, and it said, direct from the USA, Fender Precision Sunburst Bass. <laughs> and I saw that bass, and I got on the bus, and I went home to my father and said, Dad, come on. You've got to help me. I'll pay you back one day. <laughs> he came with me, and I bought that bass that was in 1960. And I played nearly every, I've recorded nearly every Moody Blues song on that bass. And my new album, The Royal Affair and After, although it's a live album, things I've been doing with it are the original precision bass. John, I don't think you, I've been doing this show for you know, seven, eight years, interviewed and spoken to many of your peers in the bass playing world. So few of them have that bass, that first real bass. I mean, there's the first bass, but then there's the first real bass. <laughs> oh, so this, this precision bass, I've recorded to, uh, a few songs last year in the height of the lockdown. And when I picked this precision bass up, I'm, it seems to want to play on its own. It's amazing. I can still smell that first day I opened the case and there was this Fender 
precision base sitting there in the case. <laughs> I could still smell it. Not that you haven't had tremendous success. You have. But if you just sold that base and paid your father back, it would have been a, a healthy return on the investment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, he was actually, it was, he was so expensive. I think it was in English money, he was 115 pounds. Yeah, that's something. Could buy, and you could buy, at the time, a mini car for 499 <laughs> So he was, uh, uh, what, 33% less than a car. <laughs> Crazy. I'd love to hear a bit about your relationship with your parents. It sounds like your father was supportive of music. How was it when you were getting older and deciding that I'm going to do this professionally? How were they in terms of accepting it, supporting it? And how were you thinking about like, this is it. This is my path. I'm going to be making music regardless of the path ahead. Who would know that you would have this level of success? They knew I was devoted 24 hours a day to my bass. I've been doing gigs since I was 16. And they just knew and they supported me. I don't come from a musical family at all. Nobody played anything and nobody sang anything. It's something new for them. And it introduced them to people they would probably never have known. Uh, they became great friends with Ray Thomas's parents and they became great friends with uh, Graham Edge's parents. And they all used to go all holiday together and meet <laughs> up, you know. It widened their horizons as well. And they were very supportive. My mother, unfortunately, my father passed away a long time ago. But my mother, when she was 90, still came to my concert at Birmingham. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah. Talk a little bit about the early days of the Moody Blues. What was it like in terms of the band seeing the power of, of one, the instrument that you're playing, two, there's a level of complexity that I don't think the average listener to music can understand in terms of playing bass and singing. It's, you know, when I've spoken to Getty Lee of Rush, he talks about the complexity of it and being a bit of a player myself and trying to sing. I'm not a singer at all. What was the formation in, in terms of songwriting how things would be crafted. Was it very evident in the early days where this band was going to go? To be honest, what really happened, we just decided. We'd be, all of us individually, at playing in other bands. And we'd all, we were playing cover versions. And it wasn't going to get us anywhere. It was the same amount of people would be coming to every gig we did. We said, you know what we should do? We should just write our own songs and play for ourselves and see if there is anyone else really interested in what we're writing about. We never thought about the com commercial aspect of it at all. And so we went off to a little village in Belgium called Moucron. And we lived there for a few months at writing what was to become uh, a stage show, all our own music. And we stayed a few months, and out of that really came down to future past because it set us on a way we knew what we wanted to do. How we did it between ourselves 
we used to sit round a coffee table in the studio or in the rehearsal room. And whoever had a song would play it to the other guys. And we'd all tap a tempo out. Mike would play, probably play tambourine. Ray would think of harmonies if it wasn't Ray's song. Graham would tap the table. And Justin would play acoustic guitar. And, and I would play bass, all acoustically. And uh, that's where how we would develop a song. And once you've played that song to the rest of the band, it came, became a Moody Blues song. It was no longer your song. <laughs> <laughs> you may have written it, but it belonged to the band. And that's where we did everything. That way you had tremendous respect for everyone in the band because if if they were supporting you you've really got to support them and really that was the secret of the band particularly in the uh, first seven albums the support for one another it was tremendous the magic and uniqueness of these songs to this day really strikes me. I mean, I was only born in the 70s and coming into the music and hearing it as I got older in the later 80s when I was first exposed to it, it is very striking and it is very unique. It would be difficult for me to have this conversation with you, John, and not bring up a song like Nights in White Satin. As an example, I think it's iconographic in terms of a really unique sound. If you think back was it very organic and natural the way a song like that comes together? It just, your music doesn't really sound so much like anybody else's. So it's peculiar to me. How do you know it's going to be this big thing? Is it just a song in a batch of songs you're writing? Is the style created in its own weird way where you're not listening and or paying attention to what else is going on in music? What is it that, that makes a song like that a song like that? What we try to do from day one, whoever wrote the song, when he became quiet, the song, we said, we should hear a pin drop. But when the song got bigger, it shouldn't get louder. It does, obviously, but it, that's not the point. It's got to be bigger, not louder, bigger. And that means... If you cover all the notes in the chord progression of the song, either through vocals or we had the mellotron or flute, we decided that's what we wanted. No one should be overlapping playing the same note. The more people playing the same note, the less really the note becomes important. For us, it was the broad spectrum. It was like cinemascope. We used to say when we were in the studio, we've got to make this like a cinemascope picture. So it's big, really big. But when it comes to the quiet point, it's still got to be big. It may just be the acoustic guitar and the bass playing, but it's still got to have this 
emotion of bigness, if that is a word. <laughs> that, that, that's how we approach every song, really. I mean, the vocals, too. There, there must have been something that you felt when you were in the room together, when you hear the vocals layered on top of the music. You see this more frequently in music, but it really does become a very unique aspect of it's almost its own instrument to a certain degree. Well, that's we thought of our vocals as instruments. We've got acoustic guitar, bass. So that's unusual for rock group. You normally have a rhythm guitar as well, but we didn't. And we had a mellotron and a, we had a flute. And the, we thought, what brings all that together? What, the other instruments, the four of us singing, Mike had this bass voice, Ray the tenor, and Justin and I, Adley, sort of upper tenor and higher tenor, soprano, really. We realized we could cover all the chords vocally and use the vocals as, as an orchestra. If we jump to the present time, because it's, it's challenging with you, you want to go back in history, you want to talk about the present. Let's talk a little bit about how you reflect on the music. Did the Moody Blues become the band you thought it would be? And if not, or, or if yes, I'd love for you to just explore why you think so or, or, or why not. I wouldn't have been in the band for that length of time otherwise. There's something about the Moody Blues music when you hear it today. When I hear it, I don't really play my own music. I listen to make sure everything is, I hope it will be. But then after it, once it's pressed and sold out and gone to the fans, I don't play it again. The whole point about the Moody Blues, for me, it's the soundtrack of my life. It's enabled me to write a song, play bass, sing in it, and have four other guys that are going to give their total respect and innovation and inspiration to those songs. You know, I wrote a song called Isn't Life Strange on the piano, and I remember playing it to Mike Pinder first, and I said, Mike, listen to this. And he took over because Mike's a pianist. I'm not. I, I can write on the piano, but I'm not a pianist. Uh, and he took over and he said, you know what we should do? I've got an 1898 old harmonium. You know, the harmonium organ was what the, we used in the West, really. You pedaled it and you played an organ sound. You know, Mike learned... Is life strange on this harmonium? And we recorded the harmonium for the whole song. In actual fact, I still got the harmonium. <laughs> uh, so that's for me. Who could have done that? It's someone who had got inspired by this song and used his creativity for me. You know, and that's what happened in the Moody Blues all the while. There's famous stories about the Beatles being impacted by Brian Wilson and Beach Boys and Pet Sound and vice versa, Brian Wilson being impacted. There was such creative bursts happening in these moments when you were a very big band and growing and having to record. What were some of those at the same time 
mutually influential things that were happening because there's the whole psychedelic culture. There was a bit of the hippie culture happening as well. Did you have a similar impact where the Beatles and the Beach Boys and what was happening in your peer group also impacting how you were playing, thinking about the bass, writing songs? What happened at the time, we, we were all on this uh, wave of music and we'd listen to everything, you know, everything, what the Beatles were doing, the Beach Boys, uh, Canned Heat, diverse bands, you know. We would be thinking to ourselves, that's what they did. We don't do that. We can't do that. We don't want to do that. What could we do which will stand up in comparison? And can we do something better than that? what they have done? And uh, not saying we could, but that was what we were trying to achieve, I suppose, by looking at it and thinking, what, we, what can we do that's as creative as what they have done? It's just the five of us, you know, five young guys from England, none of us classical mu trained musicians, none of us. So we were, in a way, groping in the dark. We knew we'd conquered our own influence, if you can ever conquer an <laughs> influence. I don't think you can. But it's a wrestling match, John. <laughs> it's, it is a wrestling match. You, you know what you can do with it, and you know what you can create with your instrument. And that's what I think we, we did in the Moody's. Rain knew what he could create with his flute, and had it definite way of playing a flute, different to anyone else. And Mike, of course, completely took over the Mellotron. He was the number one guy on the Mellotron. And Justin, his finger-picking guitar was just sensational. And so all I had to do, really, is feed my bass into the, the, the middle of all this. Did you see the, the artists of the time as being, did you see it as, as competitive or did you see it as complimentary? Were you head down, we have to do better than them? How did you see it? We were all a team. We were all a team. I didn't think of anyone being a, a competitor at all. I thought we were all the same. Mm. And don't forget that's when festivals started to appear. And you'd be on the festival where everyone, uh, Bob Dylan, Joan Byers, Jim Hendrix, uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, who? Yeah, it was a great time. Every, every. And you didn't think, it was like a wave that we were all creating. It was never, let's go down better than them. No, it was like, we've got to be at our best if we can be at our best and the, who could be at their best and everyone else, it's going to be fantastic. That's when I looked at it. 2018, the band is finally brought into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, from the moment you could be eligible, it took close to 30 years. Was that something where you put it in, in the back of your head like, mm, whatever, we get in, we get in? Or was it long past to me it feels long past due as an obvious how are they not in there after that amount of time it's a strange thing because we knew that you could be put forward after 25 years whatever i think 
coming from Britain, it, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in our psyche was an American uh, award. And it didn't really cross my mind until I realized the fans were voting and voting and voting for us to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it really came to be, I think, on the day. Up until that, yeah, we were in the Rock and Roll of Fame. Fantastic. It's going to be great. And that was it until the day. And on the day when I we got to where the award ceremony was taking part, when I looked at the amount of people there, and I thought, jeepers, all these people have voted for us and, and other artists as well. But I thought, this really is about the fans. And that's why on the stage on the night I said, this isn't just for us on stage here. It's for all you people around the world. You voted for us and all the people on stage. It, ge it gave me a wry smile, and that it suddenly started to hit me when I was on stage, how important uh, it was to me. And I, Buddy Holly was my absolute mentor. I loved Buddy Holly, and he taught me, although he doesn't know it, of course, how to play and how to write songs. But uh, I was suddenly on stage thinking, just a moment, I'm standing. This is kid from Birmingham, the council house working class in Birmingham. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with Buddy Holly now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How cool is that? I think my s smile got bigger by the second. <laughs> <laughs> also interesting that Ann Wilson from Heart did the induction. How did that come together? Uh, well, she liked the Moody Blues. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> well, that's it. They came and said to her she would like to introduce us and uh, give us the award, and we was like, well, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I think as a, a musician and artist, you don't think of other artists actually thinking that they like your music. It's really strange, though. Yeah. You never think about other artists thinking, yeah, Moody Blues. Yeah, I know that when the pandemic hit and you had to shut things down, I mean, things were really, really busy for you. I'm curious how you balance wanting to be a creative songwriter, creator with the retro world, the reality that people want to come and see the greatest hits or have it be more retrospective versus does this artist have anything left in the gas tank to create new music and new art? How do you balance it? Because you're so creative still. It's very inspiring if you're paying attention and love the band to, to watch. My whole thing nowadays is I want to keep the Moody Blues music alive. So the majority of my live concert is about Moody Blues music. I think it's really important, not only for me, but for the fans who've supported us all these years. And on stage, I do a, a song of Mike Pinder's, a song of Ray Thomas's. I've got Graham Edge, record, recorded his uh, late lament poem from Days of Future Past for me, before sadly Graham left us. 
And I have John Davison from Yes joins me on stage. And we do a version of uh, Nights in Wise Setting. I try to keep all the Moody Blues music alive, but also I want to add in the songs I'm doing now, or because I want people to know uh, it's n not just a, a nostalgic band. I want to, all these songs, I want to sound on stage that they're from 2021. And yet they, but they connect still. The music really, you managed to thread the needle very well. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really lucky as well because two of the guys in my band, in my 10,000 light year band, is Alan Hewitt, who was with me in the Moody Blues play 10 or 15 years. And a second drummer called Billy Ashbrook. And Billy was in, in sync, but he was also with the Moody's for like five years. So they understand the music. And the other two musicians, Duffy King, a guitarist, he knows all my songs are Moody Blues. And I have a cellist as well called Jason Charbonneau. And they know the music and love the music. So they are creative in their own way with the songs of the Moody Blues. Let's talk a little bit about the Moody Blues cruise and there's the cruise to the edge. That business has become a, a really interesting aspect. In fact, I would argue that perhaps the, the cruise business of doing things like that is almost really what also pushed things like VIP packages or the ability for bands to be comfortable charging a premium to get closer to one another, to have the fans and the music interact. Who came up with that idea? How did you feel about doing it? I mean, you are trapped on a boat with a lot of people who are really into the Moody Blues. That can be a bit daunting. We were approached for a few years before the very first Moody Blues cruise. And I've been on uh, the QE2 and everything else. And I thought what they wanted was you'd be part of the entertainment <laughs> on the cruise. <laughs> and uh, I I said no all along. I did want to do that. And then we got to understand, no, it wasn't that at all. It was gonna, it was going to be about nonstop music all the while from various artists all day long. And that appealed to me. I thought, well, this could be great. <laughs> and so we did a moon release cruise uh, out of Miami down through the Caribbean. And I really enjoyed it. I, I like that one-to-one -one of an audience. I really do. The intimacy is really good. We started in, in small venues and in an intimate audience there's no hiding <laughs> you can't you can't hide can't fake it hundred thousand watt pa and you can't fake it it's there and if you enjoy that it's great and i did and so we did the moody blues cruise one two and whatever number and then when i started my own band i was invited to cruise to the edge with yes and that's become a great relationship because in 2019 i did the royal affair tour with yes yeah. uh, all across america 
And last year, I was fortunate to finish it before COVID. I did Rock and Romance Cruise with Don Felder. And uh, yeah, we had a great cruise. And uh, this year, April, end of March, end of March, beginning of April. 2020, uh, 2022, yeah. 20, 2022. I'm doing the Flower Power Cruise, which at the moment, it's, I think, the Hollies and the Zombies, and uh, I know Procol Harum were doing it, I don't know. Uh, and a reformed Candide and a whole load of other people, so uh, other artists. So I'm looking forward to that. It's a, a floating festival. You know? It's the same thing. We're all on there making music. I'm trying to be respectful of our 40 minutes. One last question for you. Talk a bit about the relationship you have with John Davidson from Yes. We mentioned Yes. We mentioned Cruise to the Edge. For those who may not be so engrossed in, in the Moody Blues and, and the solo work of, of John Lodge, it might be curious that the band has been very much embraced and feels in recent years into that world of prog rock. It, would that be a mistake to think that? Do you feel you've always been a part of that genre? Do you think the genre has just expanded to include more rock-based bands? Because to some people, they might say Moody Blues and prog rock, like, okay, that's it kind of makes sense when you think about it, but somewhat surprising too. For me, it's like a piece of elastic. A lot of people come and say, Days of Future Past, the Moody Blues first album, is basically one of the first five progressive rock albums ever. And I think a lot of people, a lot of artists followed the Moody Blues career and developed developed from what we were trying to do. Prog rock just got bigger and bigger, expanded and expanded and expanded as far as it, it can go now. People have gone, just a minute, it was far as we go now with prog rock. If we revert back to where it began, where did it begin? And he said, oh, perhaps it was the Moody Blues. So I think that's the acknowledgement. A lot of prog rock people have said, I was honored last year by getting a, the prog rock award for music throughout my career. Cemented the fact the Moody Blues were part of the original prog rock, but it's developed in a far bigger way that we had developed it. It's amazing. John, I can't thank you enough, not just for your time today, I really do appreciate it, but just for the decades of music and, and joy that you bring to the world. I know many people hear the music and not many people realize it's also all about the bass. And I've often heard you say, have bass will travel. And it really was an anchor in my brain for wanting to have you talk ab about the bass and, and your amazing career. So thank you so much for your time. Mitch, thank you very much, and stay safe and take care, and thank you to all your listeners for keeping the faith. Mm.